for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. First Peter chapter 2 is where we'll be. Now we will be all over the scriptures today, um, so just hang with me, uh, track along as best as you can, but we'll be kind of all over the place, uh, especially towards the end. But let's read this passage in First Peter 2, and then we'll go from there. Verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We pray with me real quick. Father, we bow our head before you and we just we come thirsty and we come hungry today. Your word is life. God, today open our ears and open our eyes, open our hearts to see the life that is in your word, to see the life that is in you. Apply this to our, to our lives, God. Help us to eat well today. Encourage us in the hope of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For about 10 years, uh, I was a home builder, and uh, one of the things that I learned in building homes is that you do nearly about as much work up front before you ever stick a shovel in the ground as you do uh, the actual building of the home. You have to work with the architect and draw plans and get permits and make budgets and get bids and make decisions, and when you get the prices that are always way too much, you make adjustments, uh, and then you have to plan it, and then you kind of have to fit it all together and schedule it all together, uh, kind of like a puzzle. Um, so you basically have to, the way I always said is you kind of have to build it on paper before you ever build it in life. And so by the time you've put all, in all this work, it can take six months or a year, depending on the size of the project, um, it can take you about that long before you actually start doing anything. Um, and so uh, about six months or a year later, uh, when that foundation gets meticulously laid out and poured, it's a pretty neat feeling. It's a pretty neat thing to watch unfold before you. And then you show up to the sound of air compressors and the, you know, the nail guns and the, the guns are humming and everybody's working and, and walls start going up and then rooms start taking shape and ceilings get put in and uh, all that you've worked for so long to, uh, to plan and prepare for, it starts coming together before your eyes and you can kind of, now what you just saw on paper, you can kind of, you walk through it and you can touch it 
and you can, you can feel it, and you can see what it's going to feel like, and you can appreciate it. And then there's the best part, uh, when the family you've been building it for, uh, you get to give them the keys, because she's done. The project is done. You get to give them the keys, and they move in, and they start to live their lives there, and they're going to raise kids, and grandkids are coming. It, so, so what used to be just this plot of barren dirt and now has a, fu- a foundation anchored into the ground uh, and a structure on it and, and people in it. Now this, what used to be just grass and dirt and ticks, because that's the season we're in, now has a purpose, now has meaning to it. In a similar way, when you, when you read this passage of Scripture and you look at the words that keep getting used, you get the feeling you're kind of walking onto a building project. Peter calls it a spiritual house, though. Uh, He uses words like cornerstone, which uh, for us, that's a foundation. And he talks about numerously, he says, these other stones, and these stones are put on that foundation, and they're built up and around that cornerstone so that something is built up, he says. And like a home, this spiritual house, Peter says in verse 9, that it has a purpose. There's a reason that God is building it. And for this house, unlike any other building project that we could imagine, um, what is being built in this passage, its designer and builder is God himself. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at what God is building. I want us to look at how he's building it, what he's building it on, who he's building it with, and why he's building it at all. You know, when you, when you read this passage, if you look at it, you get the idea there's, there's kind of two different building projects going on. In verse 4 and 5, he's saying that God is bearing, building the spiritual house, but look at verse 7. The stone the builders rejected. So there's these other builders that he's talking about that seem to be building something that's not what God is building. So you begin to see these two different projects, these two different paths emerge, and one of them's God's, and one of them man's. And so Peter is writing to believers who they're really experiencing trials and struggles and being slandered down, and kind of being pushed to the side, so being rejected themselves because of what they believe in Christ. And he says, I want to show you, this is what he's doing, I want to show you what God is building amidst the fallen world so that you can stand firm in it. I want to remind you what he's done and what he's doing so that you can hold fast your confession, so that you can be confident, so that you can be sure, so that you can, come what may, keep your feet firmly planted in God and his eternal purposes. So, what is God building? Well, to sum it up, I've said it this way on your sheet there. God is building a people to declare his greatness throughout all the earth. God is building a people to declare his greatness throughout all the earth. This is the spiritual house Peter's talking about. And God's aim to uh, this purpose to declare his greatness, to show his glory, it's not new in this passage. It's not new in the New Testament. God has been working on this from the beginning of time. When God created man, why did he create him? To image him, to show him. Isaiah 43, 7 says, to glorify God. That's why man was created. Why did God exodus his people from under Egyptian slavery? To show his saving power. 
Why did he duke it out with Pharaoh? I mean, he could have just smashed Pharaoh in one moment. Why go through all these steps and duke it out to show that he alone is Lord of all creation? He was making himself known through each and every act he did. When God's people continued to rebel, why did he save a remnant? Scripture said it's not because they were a really good remnant. It's because he wanted to show how good and merciful and loving and patient and faithful he is. Why did Jesus come to save you? To make God known. To show that God is good. He is glorious. He is loving. He is patient. He is kind. He is faithful. To show that He is a saving God. And so, by the time we get to the church in Peter's time, the project is at a new phase, but it's not a new purpose. God created you and me and everything in this world to show how good He is, to show His greatness. And so Peter writes to help them remember this, to remember who God is, what He's done, how they should now see themselves. He's kind of reframed their understanding about who they are and why God did it all. So Peter does this um, by really offering, kind of the way that I've boiled it down when I look at this passage, three different components of the building project. Three parts of God's plans. You know, when you see plans, there's these different layers. So there's three different layers, if you will, um, that he offers to help them see and believe and stand fast in the grandeur of God's work. So, let's hit them. First, Christ is the cornerstone. You know, in ancient times, when buildings were constructed, the first and most important stone, often the largest stone, Uh, The most perfect stone set was the cornerstone. All other stones would be set in reference to this stone. And so this stone determined the location of the building, the integrity of the building, the position of it. Uh, it, 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 The entire structure was based on this one stone. You mess this part of it up and the whole project is off. It's the foundation upon which the whole structure is built. And so for Peter to talk about a cornerstone, this was common language. They, they got this. They built structures. They built buildings. They got this. But not only that, look at verse 6. What does he say? For it stands in Scripture. Meaning that's kind of like a hyperlink. You, you click on it to go back and what Scripture. He's talking about a concept that was in the Scriptures that they knew well. It was a term that was embedded within the Old Testament Scriptures. In Isaiah 8, God's people were surrounded by people who were not God's people. And they were kind of starting to walk in their ways and fear what they fear and chase what they chased. And he comes and he says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts Him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And listen to what he says. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. So he'll be a a sanctuary of stone to some, and he'll be a, a stone that people will fall over to others. In Isaiah 28, 16, the prophet is speaking to God's, at this point, very disobedient children who have again lost their way and says to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Listen to these construction terms. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the lime 
line and righteousness the plumb line. So he's telling them, you may have lost your way, but God is saying, I have not lost mine. I have laid a sure foundation. He speaks of it as it's in the past. I have laid a sure foundation that will serve as the plumb line for all righteousness. Another prophet that spoke of a coming stone was Daniel. Daniel prophesied during the time that Israel was exiled under the reign of the proud and mighty Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar had everything that man could have. He had all, which back in the day, this is what you wanted to have. He had all the gold and iron and bronze and silver and riches that man could amass. He had built a magnificent palace. At one point in Daniel 4, it says he's walking on the roof of this great palace. And listen to what he says. Listen to these words. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And it says, while the words were still in his mouth, a voice from heaven said, this kingdom will be taken from you. It will not stand. You see, in chapter 2 of Daniel, um, Daniel had prophesied to Nebuchadnezzar that there would be a stone that wasn't cut by human hands that would be laid, and that this stone would break all the gold and silver and iron. No other material would stand against this stone to where not a trace of it would be found. And he said to Nebuchadnezzar, this stone would become a great mountain that would fill the whole earth. One more in Psalms 118.22, the psalmist says, the stone that the builders rejected, you can hear it in our passage, it has become the cornerstone. And he says, this is the Lord's doing. God did it. It is marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus himself quoted this exact passage in Mark 12. He quoted this scripture as an indictment against those who were rejecting him, who were rejecting the one who had come. The coming stone was embedded deep within the scripture of God's people. They were waiting on this stone that God would lay. And so the connection that Peter is trying to make for his readers is he's saying, listen to me. Christ is that stone. Some would want to say that since Christ was rejected, he was crucified, he's not the one. Because he was rejected and crucified, he was put in a tomb, he's not God's chosen stone. But Peter says, on the contrary, according to the Scriptures, his rejection affirmed the very opposite. That Jesus was despised, rejected, and suffered at the hands of men, thrown aside as a worthless stone. We don't need that. It's not in spite of him being chosen by God, but because as Scripture foretold, it was because he was chosen by God. And this wasn't Peter's first time in making this connection and application. It may sound familiar. In Acts chapter 4, Peter was under arrest Um, before the religious leaders for healing a crippled man. you imagine? You heal a crippled man, you get arrested. And they ask him, how did you do this? How did you heal this man? By what power or name did you do this? And standing before them, Luke records that Peter was full of the Holy Spirit. And he said, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, 
by this man, by him, this man is standing before you well. Listen to this. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is, listen to what, how he applies this now, and there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Friends, Peter is telling his hearers in Acts, and he's telling his readers in our letter in 1 Peter, and his word still speaks the truth to us today. Jesus is the cornerstone, the sure foundation of all God's saving work. As the risen Savior who defeated death, he is, as Peter called him, the living stone. We think of stones as being inanimate. He calls him a living stone. And there is salvation in no other name. There's no other place to build your life. There is no other way to come to God. He is God's only cornerstone. And so writing to a people whose ground was kind of shifting beneath them as the culture began to reject them, Peter says, this is where you stand. This is where you need to put your feet Christ is the immovable cornerstone of God's salvation. He is the foundation of God's spiritual house. Second, believers are the building stones. So having established Christ as God's chosen cornerstone, Peter now looks to the response of man. What are you going to do with this? And says that it's those who come to him and believe in him that God builds into this spiritual house. So Take notice of this. Peter Peter essentially places this stone, so you can imagine it, it's before you. He places it before all mankind, and he gives only two choices. One, you cannot believe that Jesus is God's cornerstone. You can reject him, and he says you stumble over him and disobey and you fall over the stone. That's option one. Or two, you can believe that Jesus is God's cornerstone and let God be the builder of your life as you place your faith in Christ. And so, these are the only two options that Peter gives. You know, in our day and time, people want to put Jesus off and not deal with him, right? People want to say, I don't want to come to Jesus and deal with that question right now. Or they think that perhaps they can go around him, like maybe there's another way. But friends, even Jesus himself didn't give this option. Listen to the way he says it in Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and they beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Okay? So that's accept him. Here's reject him. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell. We get that right now. The floods came. The winds blew and they beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. There are those who believe and receive Jesus and build their life upon the rock and stand. And those who disbelieve and reject Jesus at his words and they are building their lives upon sand. So when the turbulence of life comes and at the end of it all, they fall. In Acts 2, when Peter preached the gospel, his hearers, it says they were cut to the heart. 
You remember this? It says he, he preached the gospel. They were cut to the heart, and they asked what we should ask. What shall we do? What did Peter say? Accept him as A. B, reject him. C, think about it for a while, and when it's good for you, let me know. Or D, find another way. No. Peter said one thing. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And what does the scripture say that happened? It says, that day. That's what it says. I didn't ask. That day, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added, that day, about 3,000 souls. Friends, Peter is making this crystal clear. He's marking out only two paths. The stone has been laid. You can accept him or you can reject him, but you cannot put him off. To put him off is to reject him. I remember hearing a message that Billy Graham once preached, not in person, but on a podcast or something. He said this, indecision itself is a choice. Not to decide is to decide not to. This is the example he gave. If you have a ticket for, I wish I could talk like him. I'd love to do that. If you have a ticket for, no. If you have a ticket, <laughs> if you have a ticket for a flight to Atlanta and you can't decide whether to go or not, if you wait past the departure time, the choice will have been made for you. The plane will take off without you. Decisions are made whether you make them or not. Time decides if you will not. And time always decides against you. Friends, you can't put Christ off because here's the truth of it. Whether you come to him or not, Christ has come to you. Christ has come. The truth is before you. The stone has been set. He's in your path. And you can reject him. And the, the words reader, Peter says to reject him is to disobey his word, which puts his word in a whole new light. That's rejecting him. You cannot believe he's the only way. He can be an offense to you. It's offensive that I need a Savior. Or today you can, as Peter said, come to him. He says, believing in him. And become a living stone yourself. And remove your shame. Shame and honor is a big thing in this passage. You may be shamed by men. But let me tell you something. Men's shame and honor system is broke. The only one able to give true honor is God. And it says, you will be honored by God. Your shame will be removed, and by building your life upon Christ, God's chosen and precious cornerstone, what Peter is saying, how these, he's helping them identify who they are with who Christ was, by doing this, by placing your faith in Christ, you become God's chosen and precious children. You become a people for his own possession, and God himself becomes the builder of your life. And this house will endure forever. This is such a beautiful hope, a steadfast, sure hope that Peter is offering his struggling friends. He's telling them, place your faith in Christ. Stay there, stand there, be firm there, and God will hold you. He will build you. Your footing will be as sure as Christ himself. But all of this hinges upon one thing. One thing. Life or death, shame or honor, chosen or rejection. All of this is, before, is, is on one thing. What will you do with the Christ? What will you do with the stone that has been laid before you? Believe. 
Let God build your life into his spiritual house that will never fail. The third component, this, is the, the, this one will take the most time to unpack. The third component of God's spiritual house is its purpose. God's purpose in building this spiritual house is to declare his greatness through all the earth. Peter writes in verse 9 very plainly, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why are you that? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we need to see this connection. I just said it, but I want us to make sure we see this connection. Peter is saying that who you now are because God saved you determines what you are now to do. He says, you are this so that this. You're a chosen race, a royal priest, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You're that so that you can proclaim his excellencies. So Peter's not just giving them a job description. He's trying to help them see who they are in an entirely new light. And so here's the, the, the neat thing about this passage. When, Peter, when, when, when they would have read this word aloud and they heard these words of what they're being called, immediately you would have, you would have seen eyes widen and ears perk up because these were not unfamiliar words. They had read this story to their children. They heard these words and they're reading to their story children to their children time and again. These were the words that God used to speak to his children that he saved from the Exodus. If you want to, you can flip back to Exodus 19, verse 4. It's a neat passage to see the connection. Um, in this passage, God's people had just been saved out, of, out from under the, the rule and the slavery of Pharaoh of Egypt. All the plagues, I mean, you know all the, how all the plagues in the Red Sea, all that just happened. So they've got that behind them. They're now miraculously a saved people, no longer being chased. And they had just come into the wilderness of Sinai, now as a free people, kind of like, what do we do now? And so the Bible says God called Moses to himself because he had something to tell them. He wanted to answer that question. He says, thus you shall say, verse 4 of chapter 19, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my, command, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Listen, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So, so go back to the Exodus. Just think of this, okay? Imagine the craziness of raining frogs and rising seas and all that stuff. Go back to the Exodus. Before that, you were living as a slave. What did your mom do for a living? They're a slave. What did your dad do? They're a slave. What did your grandpa They were slaves. What were your kids going to do? They're going to be slaves. You're living in a dark and hopeless world. This is your family. This is your life. But then God comes and does amazing and miraculous works to deliver you, to save you. And all of a sudden, your whole family story changes. The whole way you're going to raise your kids now, the whole thing is different. 
You've gone from being a people known for their slavery to being a people known for salvation. And then just when you think that's it, just when you think that maybe God just saved you and he's going to go on his way now, we had favor for a day, but it's gone tomorrow, he comes to you and says, you'll be my treasured possession now. Among all the peoples of the earth, you're my people, and I'm your God. And I'm going to show all the peoples of the earth just how good I am through your lives. And so, and, and pick up on that clue. How does God he, say he's going to make them his people? How are they going to live distinct as his people? Very simply, they're going to obey his voice. They're going to obey his voice. They're going to tune their life to his voice. They're going to believe what God says and do it. That's how the relationship's going to work. And by this, he says, you'll be mine and I'll be yours. And he's telling them, he's telling the Israelites who he just saved, this is how you should see who you are now. This is your new way to understand you And so Peter, speaking to his struggling brothers, is telling them, by faith in Christ, this is how you should see yourself. You have been delivered from the slavery of sin. You are these people. This exodus is your exodus. Sin is no longer your master. You now, by faith in Christ, are God's chosen and precious possession, your royal and holy priesthood. He says, once you weren't this. You remember that once? Once you weren't this. Once you were not a people, but now, he says, you're God's. Now you're God's people. Friends, if you are in Christ, this is you. This is me. You are God's chosen, precious, holy, royal people. You are His priest. You ever claim that title of yourself? Have you ever you ever said that? You ever said, I'm a priest? When you hear the priest and a rabbi rock into a bar joke, are you the priest? The passage says that if you're in Christ, you're a holy and royal priesthood. Go ahead, say it to yourself. Let's do this together. I'm a priest on the count of three. One, two, three. I'm a priest. Amen. That's exactly right. Scripture says we're priests. And so, What were priests known for in the Old Testament? They're not thinking of today. I'm not trying to say anything about that. They're thinking about then. What were priests known for in the Old Testament? What did his readers think of when they heard, you're priests? Priests were God's men. Their lives were oriented to more than anything else. They were cued in on God. When God spoke, they listened. Good priest. They took all their cues in life from God. They were representatives of God's presence on earth among all men. They were blessed by God to be a blessing. They spoke blessings over the people on behalf of God. Priests were known for having lives that were all about God. Remember, we're the priests in this story. Priests were known for having lives that were all about God. And so what Peter is saying again is, this is who you are. Your lives represent God's presence on earth. You're God's people. And so, keep going, let's dig a little deeper. As God's priest, what do we do? What what do priests do? What are priests known for doing? Peter 
Hints at it in verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So again, this is not new language for them. They knew this. The primary work of a priest, his main day-to-day responsibility that he carried out was to make sacrifices in the temple. This is what much of the book of Leviticus is about. In Genesis, so the kind of a cliff note version to get us there, in Genesis, God created man for himself. He established the relationship. In Exodus, he gave laws to regulate the relationship. This is how you and I are going to operate together. And in Leviticus, God makes it possible for a sinful people to dwell with a holy God. That's what the sacrificial system is about. You see, the Bible says the wages of sin is what? death. That's exactly right. Scripture says that the life of man is in his blood. And so to take the life out of man, to give him the death that's due him, take the blood out of man. Hebrews says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So blood represented life. And the only way to deal with sin then is to deal with blood, to take blood from life. And so think about this. You never thought about the sacrifices when you read this. It's just kind of, You know, you don't think of it as a gift, but God gave his people the sacrificial system as a way for them to be with him, to be in relationship, a sinful people being in relationship with a holy God without dying. It was a way for them to not die in their sins, but by faith in God, through the sacrifices, to live in relationship with God. And the priest were the ones who performed the sacrifices. They sacrificed the animals and they, they would pour blood all over. If you read that, they put blood on everything. There'd be blood on the altar. It would be covered in blood and it would be to atone for the sins of the people. And so, this, this is our question then. Uh, at this moment, we've got a few more questions. If we're all priests assembled in the house of God, why aren't we surrounded by goats and bulls? Why don't we all have like machetes attached to our hips when we come to church? Why isn't this offer, altar covered in the blood of goats? Why instead is there the symbolic blood of Christ before us? The book of Hebrews gives us answers, and I'll try to be concise as I can with these. Hebrews 10, listen to the change that takes place from the old priesthood to what's happened to the old sacrifices to the new. Hebrews 10, 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. There's your bulls and goats. Which, he writes, can never take away sins. But, so here's the change. When Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. And what was that offering? Hebrews 9, 24 and 26. For Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, as in not into the spiritual, the, the temples and the sanctuaries that were built by man, which are copies of the true things, but he entered into heaven itself, it says, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, and here it is, by the sacrifice of himself. 
Friends, this is why we sing about blood. This is why we symbolically raise the cup of Christ's blood. Jesus gave his own body, he gave his own blood as the full and final sacrifice for sin once and for all. And the writer of Hebrews was telling his readers that all the sacrifices that were ever made were but a foreshadowing of the one sacrifice of the one true lamb who would be given for the sins of man. He was making the connection that Christ is the final sacrifice. Friends, when Jesus died on the cross, that was his altar, and said, it is finished. He was saying that the wages of your sin have been paid. Your debt is done. By my blood, your sin is atoned for. No more goats, no more bulls. No more calves, no more sprinkling of blood on this altar. From now on, the only blood you need is the blood of Christ. This is why when Jesus was dining with his disciples, he raised the cup and he said, drink this. This is the cup that is poured out for you. It's the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. It's the new way that man and God exist in relationship together, no longer through the blood of goats and animals, but through the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So no longer do we need sacrifices for sin to be made. All that remains today, we're not about to herd in some goats here, the only thing that remains today is do you believe that? Is that the cup you drink from? Do you claim that his sacrifice is for your sins? That's what placing your faith in Christ, that's what it means. It means claiming the cross of Christ. That sacrifice was paid for your sins. It's the reason you can stand before God clean and pure and righteous with no more blood to be spilled. It's claiming that by his wounds I'm healed. By his stripes I'm healed. By his blood I'm clean. I pray that every person in the room today would do that, would believe that. And so, back to our, kind of the the, the line of thinking we were on, this begs the question, if Christ did this once and for all, then what's Peter talking about? What are these spiritual sacrifices? And and again, I know we're all over Scripture. We've got two more passages to see and we'll be be done. What What are we sacrificing? If Christ did it once and for all, what are we What are these spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ? Hebrews 13, 15. It says, through him. Talking about Christ. He's using the same language Peter used, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So what's your sacrifice? Your, living, your lips giving praise to all that God has done for you. That's a simple and beautiful way that you tell of his excellencies. We tell others with our lips, I was a sinner, broken, lost, I was in darkness, and God came and his light shined on me. He saved me. He's good. He's gracious. Jesus is my sacrifice. He gave me life, and he is the he is my life. 
So we say that with our lips. That's one way. But look at, look at the other side. Romans 12.1, a passage you're probably familiar with. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So here Paul is saying that it's not just your lips. We're not just giving God lip service, but it's your whole body. It's how you live. It's how you play basketball. It's how you work. It's how you go out on a date. It's everything you do with you. This is your sacrifice when you live it unto the glory of God. And so you, you okay, so take all of this and tie all of this together as the chosen, precious, beloved people of God. As his priest, how do we proclaim the excellencies of God to the world? The answer, Christ-exalting worship with every inch of your life. From your lips to your toes, everything you say, everything you do is in and through and for Jesus Christ. And here's the deal, because we know this. We're not done with the presence of sin, are we not? Our sacrifices are pretty imperfect. And a priest would never come before God with an imperfect sacrifice. But he says, because of Christ, your imperfect sacrifices, your worship, your life, God accepts it. And it is good. Peter is trying to tell his people who are kind of flailing amidst the pressure this is who you are. This is how you'll stand. Believe this. Come what may, the world will shift, the world will fall, it'll all pass away. This is how you will stand. Stand in what Christ has done for you. Let God build your life and let God proclaim His greatness through your life in all the earth. And So let me ask you, as the band comes back up, um, where are you building your life today? Is it upon Christ? The sure foundation, the chosen and precious tested cornerstone? Or is it something else? Have you made another pathway to deal with the stone? This passage, it, it invites us. Build here. Build here. Build your life on this. You know what? Actually, it's even better than that. It says, put your faith in Christ and I'll build you. Put your faith in Jesus and I will build you into something you can't imagine. Everything else will fail. Everything else will shift. Everything else will fall. But this rock will not move. Jesus will not move. When he came out of the grave, he said, there's nothing that can move me. There's nothing can, that can defeat me. So I'll, I'll, I'll end how Peter started. As you come to him. That's the, that's the Christian life. Come to him. Maybe today is the first time you need to get up and come to him. I'm not talking about physically, though you can do that. You need to come to him. You need to believe. You need to stop pushing and rejecting and put it off and believe there's salvation in no other name. And you stop guarding areas of your life and believe 
Anything I guard from him, I guard from his blessings. I guard from his promises. I guard from his goodness and his grace and his love. As you come to him today, um, my prayer is that as we come to this table, you're not just drinking grape juice and eating funky stale crackers. You're saying, this is my sacrifice. This is for my sins. Don't drink that one. This body was broken for me. That's what you're proclaiming. You're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so today, I want to invite you to, maybe it's the first time, proclaim it. Say, that's mine. Whatever you need to do, I pray you'll do it today. Let's, let's pray, uh, and then we'll come will partake of the Lord's Supper. Father, we bow our head before you. We, we thank you, God, that you have changed us. By the blood of your Son, you have given us life. You've changed my family. You've changed my legacy. You've changed, you've changed the whole people to declare how good and gracious you are. What a privilege you have given us, God. So, God, today I pray that Many would come and they would confess, Jesus is the Christ, he's the cornerstone, and he's my sacrifice. Today, if you need to do that, do it. Ask him to save you, God will do it. Ask him to be your sacrifice, he'll apply the blood of Christ to your life. Whatever you need to do today, this altar is open. Respond in faith. Respond in faith today. Trust that God is good, and he will take care of you finish what he started in you. Let's stand. If you are a Christian, we invite you to come today and share the Lord's Supper. If you're in the middle, come this way. If you're out there, go that way. If you're over here, go this way. Um, if today's your first time and you want to become a Christian, we invite you to join us. I'll be here at the front. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. Other elders will be available. Whatever you need to do today, do it when you're ready. Come and Partake of the blood of Christ for your sins. Let's sing.